0: This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting Etnastory.com.
1: People are yearning for information,
0: having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say, we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone.
1: Our guest today is ABC News correspondent and best-selling author, Dan Harris. At ABC, Dan has been co-anchor on Good Morning America and on Nightline, although Dan has recently stepped down as the anchor of Nightline to focus more on the business that has grown out of his New York Times best-selling book on meditation, 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Actually Works. Dan continues to co-anchor the weekend edition of Good Morning America as he hosts an ABC radio podcast inspired by his book called 10% Happier with Dan Harris. We are so excited to have Dan with us today to talk about how meditation has impacted his life and how we can all get started meditating.
0: Welcome, Dan.
2: Thanks for having
1: me. (laughs) Let's start with your infamous journey to meditation and the panic attack on the set of Good Morning America back in 2004. Can you tell us what led to that panic attack and what was going on in your life at the time?
3: I had in the years before the panic attack, this was back in 2004, so in the years before the panic attack, I spent a lot of time in war zones, Iraq and Afghanistan and a lot of stuff in the Middle East as well. I have to be careful using this term, but in a way, I really liked it. Uh, That's not to say that I enjoy violence. I definitely don't. But there's an expression, there's nothing more thrilling than the bullet that misses you. (laughs) And in my case, they all miss. Wasn't true for a lot of my friends, but Mm. nonetheless, I got really hooked on that experience. So I did that for a couple of years, and I came home in the summer of 2003 after, I think, six months in Iraq, and I got depressed. I didn't know I was depressed, though, and then I did something extremely dumb, which is I started to self-medicate with recreational drugs, including cocaine. Then one day I was on the air in June of 2004, and I just basically lost the ability to speak. I couldn't breathe. My lungs seized up. My mouth dried up. My palms were sweating. I really just lost it. Afterwards, I went to a doctor who's an expert in panic, and one of the questions he asked me was, do you do drugs? And I said yes, and He gave me a look that told me that I was an idiot, and he explained that even though I hadn't been doing drugs that much, it was pretty short-lived and intermittent, it was enough to change my brain chemistry Mm. and make it more likely for me to freak out. And so that was just a huge moment of seeing how mindlessness can cascade in a way, and you know, I quit doing drugs in that doctor's office that day, agreed to see him indefinitely for years, and it was ultimately him who recommended years later that I investigate meditation. And it really took off from there.
0: Was that your first panic attack on television? Or had you had some others?
3: I had had moments where I got really nervous and maybe didn't perform as well because I was nervous. But I never had to quit in the middle of I was anchoring what's called the newscast that day. So the way we used to structure Good Morning America is we had two main hosts, Diane Sawyer and Charlie Gibson. And then there was somebody who came on at the top of each hour to read the headlines. So for two or three minutes, they would just read the major headlines of the day. And that used to be the job of a very famous person named Robin Roberts, who's now the main host of the show. Mm. And I would fill in for her mm-hmm. 15 years ago. My panic attack kicked in very quickly, and I had to quit in the middle of that. I'd never had a panic attack that rose to that level.
0: Dan, you were assigned to the faith and spirituality beat for ABC News. Can you tell us some stories from that?
3: The Timing here is funny. So during a period of time where I was also spending time in Iraq, I was also covering the evangelical scene in the United Mm. States of America. And in 2004, of course, this would be a familiar name to you guys, somebody named George (laughs) W. Bush got reelected. There was a lot of talk of so-called values voters. And so I spent a lot of time covering evangelical Christians. And I come from a very secular background. So to me, this was very new and unusual. It was eye opening. You know, I didn't become a believer. Nonetheless, I realized how ignorant I was about issues related to faith and spirituality. And I made a lot of new friends and just formative period for me. And then as part of that beat, one of my colleagues recommended that I read a self-help book. She thought the author of that book might make a good story as part of my coverage of this area. And the book was by a guy named Eckhart Tolle. Mm -hmm. So I read the book and I thought at first I was started to read it. I thought, well, this is just very, very dumb it just struck me as pseudoscientific. He uses words like vibrational fields. And he was talking about how the book would give you a spiritual awakening, whatever that means. And then he claimed at one point that after his own spiritual awakening, he lived on park benches for two years in the city of London in a state of bliss. Uh, You know, I think they have winter in London. So that struck me as not a credible claim. And so I was pretty put off by him. But I kept reading the book, and he started to unfurl a thesis about the human condition that I had never heard before that was very interesting to me. His argument is that we all have a voice in our heads, by which he's not referring to schizophrenia or hearing voices or anything like that. He's referring instead to the inner narrator that we all have, that Mm -hmm. little voice that chases us out of bed in the morning and is yammering at us all day long. We're always sort of wanting stuff or not wanting stuff, judging people, judging ourselves comparing ourselves to other people, thinking about the past or thinking about the future to the detriment of whatever is happening right now. I have a friend who, uh, he also wrote a book about meditation. He jokes that when he thinks about the voice in his head, he feels like he's been hijacked by the most boring person alive, who just says <laughs> the same junk over and over, most of it negative, all of it self-referential. And tolly's argument is when you're unaware of this nonstop conversation that you're having with yourself, it owns you. And this is why you find yourself with your hand in the fridge when you're not hungry or you're checking your email in the middle of a conversation with another homo sapien or you're losing your temper when it doesn't make any sense. I was just really struck by this thesis for two reasons. One, it just struck me as intuitively true. And two, it really explained my panic attack because the voice in my head is why I went off to war zones without thinking about the consequences. Then I came home, got depressed, was insufficiently self-aware to even know it, and then it all blew up in my face. I went to go interview Eckhart Tolle to the delight of my producer. I found him to be incredibly frustrating. And, you know, the problem is that he's, as a friend of mine has described him, he's correct, but not useful. In other words, he's correct and incisive in his description of the human condition, but he doesn't give you any advice about what to do about it. <laughs> and it was around that time, as I was kind of trying to figure out what to do about this voice in the head thing, that a few people, including my shrink and also my wife, recommended <laughs> meditation.
1: What was your initial experience of meditation like?
3: It's awful. The worst. First of all, I had to get past some misconceptions. You know, I'm a pretty skeptical guy. I'm not a traditional meditator type. This is the first time in my life I've ever been ahead of a trend. This is like 2008, 2009. (laughs) Meditation hadn't yet become cool. And there were very few aspirational figures for me to look at and think, okay, maybe this is something for me. So I just thought it was for people who lived in yurts and are really into, you know, Cat Stevens. And there were a couple of things that started to change my mind. One is that I started to see all of the scientific research it's exploded even since then but at that point it was very strongly indicating that a little bit of meditation every day could lower your blood pressure boost your immune system lower the release of stress hormones and literally rewire key parts of your brain Mm -hmm. so that was very interesting and then i learned that you know there's a kind of meditation called mindfulness meditation that's secular Very simple and doesn't have any religious lingo or metaphysical claims associated with it. So that was interesting to me as well. And then finally, just learning that you didn't have to join a group or believe in anything or sit in a funny position. You don't have to cross your legs. You can just sit in a chair. And I just got familiar with the practice. And finally, I just took the leap and did it for five minutes one day. And like I said, it's awful in that if you really... (laughs) you really see how crazy you are because Mm -hmm. the instructions are very simple, just to sit, try to focus on the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. And then when you get distracted, you start again. But what they don't warn you is that you're going to get distracted so many times (laughs) and you're going to have this full frontal collision with the voice in your head that is very embarrassing and frustrating. So the first time I did it, I remember thinking, well, I'm really bad at this. But I can see right away how useful this would be. This was not some hippie pastime. And in fact, the seeing of your own inner wildness and distractibility and self-centeredness is the antidote to this kind of malevolent puppeteer of our ego that is yanking us around all the time. The antidote is simply seeing it clearly so that it doesn't own you. Mm -hmm. That was very clear to me from my first experience.
0: And then you just gradually started with five minutes and just sort of consciously tried to go a little longer each time. Is that how it worked?
3: I don't think I got north of 10 minutes for a year. Over the course of my first year, I did five minutes and I gradually got to 10 minutes. And I don't think I was doing much more than that. And then I decided to go on a meditation retreat. But I don't want anybody to think that if you're interested in meditation, you've got to go on a meditation retreat. I was writing a book. I decided I was going to write a book about this, and I needed some stuff to write about, so I decided to go on a meditation retreat. My advice to people who just want to do a little bit of meditation to access some of the advertised health benefits is, honestly, one thing I often say is one minute counts.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. I also have a precept that I like called daily-ish. It's great to do it every day, but, you know, some days it's possible, given how hectic our lives can be, that you may miss a day. And I don't want the missing of a day to be an opportunity for the voice in your head to swoop in and tell you you're a failed meditator. You never have to do it again. So I like to have a low bar and a sort of elasticity that gives you flexibility, because I from my understanding of the science of habit formation, that those can be very useful approaches. But anyway, I decided to go on a meditation retreat after a year, and after that, I started to up my daily dosage to 30 minutes and then maybe a little bit more than that. And then for a period of time as I was getting really, really into it, I even was doing it for a couple of hours a day and then I scaled back. So I'm I'm always tinkering with it. I try to do a retreat every year and kind of roughly compare it to exercise. There are some people who just do the minimum in order to make sure that they're in reasonably good shape. And then there are some people who run marathons. And for me, I you know write books about this. I have a company that teaches people how to meditate through an app. And I have a podcast. And I just feel personally very compelled to go into the deeper end of the pool here. And I think that if I'm going to be out there evangelizing on behalf of this practice, that I really should know what I'm talking about.
0: It's just incredible to watch how your life really did change right i mean it went a whole direction that you would have never anticipated
3: that is factually accurate (laughs) Um, i I would not have expected (laughs) this I sometimes make the joke that if you had told me 15 years ago that my life would end up the way it is, I would have coughed my beer up through my nose. (laughs) uh, It's very surprising to me. And yet, it's amazing. And I get a lot of meaning out of the practice itself. But in some ways, what's even more meaningful is knowing how many people I've been able to direct toward the practice, you know, and... I haven't done so much meditation that my ego has fully evaporated. So (laughs) when I say that, while there is some ego in that, a lot of it really is not about me. I see myself as kind of a gateway drug. I talk about meditation in a little bit of a different way than others do. And that, I think, allows me to speak to skeptics and to get them interested in the practice. But then I step out of the way and I give them great teachers on our app or in my podcast or even in my books. You know, mostly what I'm doing is telling my stories of time with these great teachers. So I'm doing a little bit of a fancy dance and I get people in the door. And then I serve them up this incredible, you know, millennia old wisdom. And that's just a like it's a good way to spend my life.
0: We've heard you talk about your parents. How have they reacted to your transformation?
3: Uh, pretty <laughs> skeptical about it. At first, I think my dad thought that maybe I would become ineffective at work. I think that changed over time when the book actually succeeded. I mean, nobody thought my first book was going to be anything, including me. I thought nobody was going to read the book. But then it turned out to be way more successful than I thought. And It turned into a company and lots of other things. And so I think the idea that it would make me less effective at work evaporated for my dad. Nonetheless, he never adopted the practice personally. He claims that naps are his meditation. So (laughs) my mom, however, who is in some ways even more skeptical than my dad, they're both academic physicians, actually both now retired, but they were academic physicians at Harvard. So very, very smart high wattage individuals. And my mother is the smarter of the two and quite skeptical. And she was really intrigued by the science, in particular, some of the science that was done at her hospital, Mass General Hospital, that got her to start doing it. So she does meditate quite regularly.
1: What about your wife and your kids? How do they feel about meditation?
3: My wife's attitude toward meditation is a little bit more complex. And that's my fault. It turns out A good way to think about what I'm about to describe is that there was a cartoon in the New Yorker magazine years ago. It portrays two women having lunch, and one of them says to the other, I've been gluten-free for a week, and I am already annoying. And um, (laughs) that is something that happens with meditators. You can get a little preachy about it, and I fell into that trap. And the victim was my wife.
2: And <laughs> right.
3: so my rule now is I don't talk about meditation unless somebody asks me to. So you ask me to come on the podcast. I'll, I'll talk way too much about meditation because it's <laughs> my favorite subject. But in my experience, people don't like it when you talk to them in an unsolicited way about meditation. I think it often comes across as you telling them they're broken. And I really went down that rabbit hole with my wife. And so as a consequence, she did not meditate for many years. Ultimately, she started to do it, but I don't know how much she's doing because I know that it would be a mistake to ask her. So <laughs> that remains secret. we have one kid, he's almost five. And my attitude about that is he knows daddy meditates, but I don't really push it on him or teach him how to do it because. You know, I think about my relationship with my parents. I do nothing that they told me to.
1: Exactly.
3: So, for example, they're very strict about watching TV, and I now work inside the television. So, <laughs> I really, that backfired. And yet, I do everything that they modeled. I do everything now that they did in the way they lived their life. They were very serious about work and their career, and I am too. They're very serious about their marriage and their relationship. I am, too. They were very dedicated to exercise. I am, too. And so I sort of have this faith that if my son sees me, and you know, I often counsel other parents who come to me and say, especially parents of teenagers who say that their kids are anxious and they need this mindfulness thing, and I often say, you know, the best way to have a mindful kid is to be a mindful parent, mm-hmm. and that's kind of my approach I'm, I'm going to take with Alexander.
1: You touched on this a little bit earlier, but you've said that meditation should be humbling. Can you expand on that a little bit?
3: You know, I get to meet a lot of spiritual teachers in all flavors, particularly interested in sort of Buddhist meditation teachers in my podcast and in my writing. Do you have a favorite? Well, I have a teacher who I work with directly whose name is Joseph Goldstein, who is Mm -hmm. a remarkable human being. And he doesn't if you walked in the room, you wouldn't by just glancing at the guy, think he's some big deal meditation teacher, although he has been referred somewhat jokingly to as the Pope of American Buddhism. He is a huge figure in American Buddhism, but he's just like a seventy five year old Jewish guy who wears khakis and button down (laughs) shirts and is constantly making jokes and he could be my dad or one of my uncles. He's not like a robe wearing self-righteous character. He's pretty mellow and doesn't take himself too seriously. And that actually gets to what I was going to drive at, which is for me, one sign of a really advanced practitioner is that they don't take themselves too seriously. That I think is a natural outgrowth of the kind of humility that should be one of the fruits of meditation, because if you sit down and look at your mind, you're going to see awful things. I'll quote the great Zen master Thich Han, who said, anybody who sits and looks in a sustained way at his or her own mind will see Hitler, mm-hmm. because it's all in there. The human condition is the human condition. We, as Walt Whitman said, contain multitudes. In my experience, the people who have spent decades doing this work really don't take themselves that seriously because, first of all, they're not that sure there's much of a self at all, that the, Mm the idea of a solid self actually is an illusion. And they become this kind of, to quote the great spiritual teacher Ram Dass, you become a connoisseur of your neuroses. They don't go away. It's all still in there, but your relationship to it is much lighter and you don't, take it so seriously. You don't take it so personally. You don't act out every neurotic compulsion that splits through the you know your mind.
0: You entitled your book 10% Happier. That title is just so, I don't know, perfect. Can you describe why and how you came up with that?
3: It's so funny because now I often hear from people who think it was a good title, uh, but at the time, nobody liked it. My publisher tried to get me Literally tried to negotiate me up to 20 or 30% happier, (laughs) uh, which was a tough conversation. And we spent a lot of time, you know, looking at alternative titles, but I really always liked this title. It was a very lucky sort of moment where I was talking to one of my colleagues, a woman named Chris Sebastian, who's an old friend and mentor of mine at ABC News. And I had just come back from my first meditation retreat. And as discussed, this was before meditation had kind of gone mainstream. Chris was quite skeptical of my new pastime, and she was quizzing me about it one day at work. She was saying, "You know what is going on with you in this meditation thing?" You know, not in an approving way. And she's like, "Why are you doing this?" And I said, out of nowhere, "Ah, you know, because it makes me like ten percent happier."
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and
3: I noticed that she had this look on her face because she had been looking at me with something approaching scorn, and all of a sudden, after I said ten percent happier she looked at me with mild interest. And I thought, okay, that's my shtick.
1: So it's an attainable goal for people.
3: That's exactly right. I'm now working on a new book and I have to figure out the name and I'm really struggling. I feel like 10% happier may be the best I could ever do.
1: So now that you've been meditating and you meditate maybe up to an hour a day, are you still holding steady at 10% happier yourself? Or are you a greater percent happier?
3: You know, now that I'm (laughs) stuck with math, for the rest of my life and I hate math my semi-joking response is that like any good investment the 10% compounds annually so I don't know what figure I would give you but I do think that I'm way more than 10% happier relative to where I was the first time I meditated
0: how do you think that meditation has changed you in the way that you present yourself as you go through life
3: I think what might be worth clarifying here is, like, what do we mean when we say happier? Because there's so many misconceptions about what happiness is. Mm -hmm. Even in the linguistic roots of the word, hap, that is H-A-P, the same root of the word haphazard or hapless. It literally means luck. The idea is, like, it's something embedded in our language is the idea that this is happiness is something that happens to you. You win the lottery, the cute boy in your class likes you, whatever there are a couple of things that I find really radical and empowering about meditation. One is what the science around meditation is screaming out at us is that happiness is in fact, a skill, Mm -hmm. something you can train just the way you can train your bicep in the gym. So that is a huge headline. And I think really the animating insight of my whole side hustle as a meditation evangelist, because the notion that the mind is trainable I jokingly refer to myself as an evangelist, but evangelicals are preaching the gospel. Gospel means good news. The good news, in my case, is that you are not stuck with your level of happiness, your level of calm, your level of distractibility, your level of compassion. These are all skills that are susceptible to training. And at the end of the day, we all want, everything we want, narrows down to mental states. You may think, you know, I want a promotion or I want the next vacation. I want my health to improve. But what you actually want, whether you know it or not, is the mental states that will arise from those conditions coming to fruition. So meditation jumps right to the mental states and helps you train your ability to be resilient, to be focused, to be empathic and compassionate, no matter what the conditions are. And the fact of the matter is we think we can control the conditions of the world around us, but we really can't. We live in a universe that's characterized by entropy and impermanence. So I think the kind of happiness that meditation engenders is a much more rugged happiness that is a sort of contentment in the face of a world where we have some control but not as much as we think. That seems very powerful.
1: You mentioned that you were meditating before it was cool. What do you attribute to the rise of meditation?
3: There are at least two factors. The first we've touched on, it's just the science. Mm The science is the lingua franca in our culture in many ways, and the fact that we have thousands of studies that, by the way, many of these studies are flawed, and many of the people who talk about the science in my line of work in journalism, et cetera, et cetera, hype it. But nonetheless, if you look at the body of the work, It strongly suggests that a little bit of meditation every day can confer a long list of health benefits. And that has then created a situation where many of the most aspirational figures in our society, in the world of sports, entertainment, business, are adopting this practice because they know it will make them more focused and less yanked around by their emotions. That combination has fueled a lot of interest. The other factor is the one you named, which is that we in part as a consequence of our tech-drenched era, are now more fractured, more frazzled, more isolated, more anxious, more depressed than we've ever been. Meditation is a terrific antidote.
0: It seems like technology is making us addicts, like we can't stop checking our phones for the latest news and getting our hits of dopamine every time we check our email and social media feeds. What are your thoughts on that and about the impact technology is actually having on us? How does it play with mindfulness?
3: That's all true, what you just said, in my opinion, and from what I can tell from the evidence. Isn't it ironic, then, that there's this, been this renaissance of, right. not renaissance, this birth, renaissance would be a rebirth, the birth of this proliferation of meditation apps, for your phone i have one uh, right which is awesome happier, by the so. way.
0: we love your app mm-hmm.
2: oh thank you <laughs> you're welcome
3: i'm not anti-technology and i think the phone can be a wonderful tool the problem one is that the people designing many of the apps on the phone and particularly around social media and some of the people designing the phones themselves are tapping into our achilles heels psychologically many achilles heels like our need to be loved, our love of dopamine hits and distraction. Mm -hmm. So they're really exploiting some of our psychological shortcomings. So that part of technology I don't love, but the ability to FaceTime with my child when I'm on the road, I love that. I mean, there are parts of social media I like keeping up on my friends' kids. So there are parts of the technology that are amazing. And I think there's a whole conversation that should be had around regulation of the tech giants. I'm not going to weigh in either way, but I I do think on the user side, we can all do better in terms of our relationship, mindfulness, this self-awareness, can help you regulate. Can you use the self-awareness that comes as a consequence of meditation to notice that you've been on Twitter for the last 45 minutes and your stomach is aching and you're pissed off or whatever? So I do think meditation is a great tool in terms of regulating your use of technology. Mm -hmm. And I think these meditation apps, and there are many of them that are excellent, are a good way to co-opt this Mm -hmm. now ubiquitous device and turn it into an engine for training your mind.
1: As mindfulness meditation becomes more and more mainstream, do you worry that we might be losing something in the translation?
3: Yes. I mean, generally speaking, I'm strongly, strongly, strongly pro the mainstreaming. There are some purists, particularly in the Buddhist world, who refer to the last 10 years of popularization as Nick Mindfulness. <laughs> And I think they have very legitimate critiques. I also believe that more mindfulness is better than less mindfulness and that it's okay that people we don't agree with, people who traditional Buddhists may not like, like members of the military or corporate titans, it's okay that they're doing meditation even if we disagree with them. I have nothing against the military, nor do I have anything against corporate titans, but some in the Buddhist world do. And I'm much more okay with this popularization, I think, than some of the critics are. But I also feel that, as I said, that some of their critiques are really spot on. And one in particular that I'm really intrigued by is in the Buddhist tradition, mindfulness was one of many qualities that were cultivated through meditation. Another huge one that doesn't get talked about as much is something called compassion which is a big word but really just means the desire to help people who are suffering that's wired into us as a species we're a cooperative species we survived and dominated the planet because we could work together to take down the mastodon or whatever we weren't stronger than all the other animals but together we were stronger this desire to be cooperative and compassionate is very much a part of our wiring and is what makes us feel healthy and alive and Meditation was in part designed to boost that characteristic too, and I think that's underemphasized in the popularization of meditation, and so it's in fact what I'm writing my next book about.
1: Speaking of compassion, you've recently expanded your meditation practice to include volunteering at a hospice. Can you tell us about that decision?
3: My wife and I, we have some friends who are Zen priests. Two guys who are married to each other and are these just kind of incredible Zen priests, and they run a center called the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. They run a training program that teaches people how to be volunteers in hospices. And I had had them on my podcast, and my wife heard it, and then we became friends with them, and then we decided to sign up for their course. It's really incredible. And as part of that, you volunteer in the hospice. And so for me, you know, I didn't have a medical background unlike my wife, and that was a real eye-opener. And yeah, I learned a lot about myself. And I have wound down my visits to the hospice in part because there was one patient I got very close with. I don't know of any other precedent for this. There may be precedent This guy, Ronnie, survived in hospice for five years to the point where they sent him home. So now I still visit with Ronnie. I don't go to the hospice anymore. I visit with Ronnie directly, and he's at home. He's off of his oxygen, and it looks like this guy who was told he had three days to live could be around for quite a while. So I still go see Ronnie, but I don't go to the hospice much anymore just because I'm in a little bit of a busy phase in my life.
0: We think one of the things meditation teaches us is that we are a work in progress and wanted to get your thoughts on that. You know, it's a dichotomy, right? We're goal driven. How does the mindfulness interact with that? I've been
3: thinking about this a little bit recently. I don't know how well I can articulate my thoughts, but it's not like we ever reach some permanent position of everything is good. Everything is changing all the time. This is an indisputable fact of nature. Meditation, can help you on all these different levels, and yet things are going to continue to change. I know very advanced meditation teachers who've gotten divorced or who get sick. Does that mean they weren't practicing well enough? No, it just means that the world is constantly changing. Your body changes, your relationships change. What I do think is that they handle their divorces or their strokes or whatever with much more grace than they would have if they hadn't trained their minds for 50 years. Mm -hmm. So of course, we're works in progress. Often, we're not in control of the progress. I don't think that is really fundamentally a contradiction with setting goals. I still set goals. I want our company to grow. I want our product to continue to get better. I want to finish my next book and have it be as good as I can make it. And yet I recognize that, you know, death is unavoidable and aging and illness are pretty much unavoidable. And that. Everybody in my life is susceptible to these things, and I think both can happen at the same time.
2: Dan,
1: what, <laughs> what do you think are the top benefits of meditation?
3: There are three, a couple of them I've talked about already, but it's probably worth going through again. One is an overall sense of calm. Calm is a tricky word in the meditation app space. We have a major competitor, probably the number one meditation app out right now is called Calm. It's a bit of a tricky promise because I think meditation overall has a calming effect. It makes you calmer in the face of life's ups and downs. But anybody who's meditated may notice that on any given day, your meditation experience may not be calm. Mm -hmm. You may actually sit down and find yourself completely enraged or totally distracted. And that's actually not a problem in terms of your meditation practice. In fact, it can be a good thing. Because to sit for a couple of minutes and see your capacity for anger or sadness or fear or distractibility, instead of trying to wish it away and tell yourself a failure because you should be in this bulletproof bubble of bliss, to in (laughs) fact get more curious and interested in and intimate with all of these emotions to which we're all susceptible is a training and not drowning in these emotions that are going to come up for you from time to time. So to see it from a mindful standpoint on the cushion in meditation is what allows you to not be so overwhelmed by it and yanked around by it in your life. So if you sit and you meditate and you're noticing a lot of anger is coming up and you investigate it mindfully, well, how does it feel in your body? What kind of thoughts are you thinking? Well, then when you're ambushed by anger in the middle of a conversation with your spouse, you're less likely to say the thing that's going to ruin the next 72 hours of your life. Calm is a tricky benefit, but a benefit nonetheless. The second one is focus, you know, the exercise of sitting, watching your breath and then noticing you've become distracted and starting again and again and again. That really has been shown on the brain scans to build up the parts of the brain that are associated with attention regulation or focus. We live in an era where we're just taught to be distracted all the time because of our phones, And meditation is a great antidote to that. And then third, the most important benefit, in my opinion, a basic mindfulness meditation, is mindfulness. And what is mindfulness? It's the ability to know what's happening in your mind at any given moment without being yanked around by it. The skill of knowing what's happening between your ears right now without necessarily taking the bait and acting on it. And that is just incalculably useful because we are all the time, if you close your eyes and, and look, <laughs> pay attention to what's happening in your mind, we're just in this sea of sensory input, emotions, random thoughts, urges. And to have more familiarity with and intimacy with the zoo-like nature of your mind means that you can surf that stuff instead of drowning in it. And again, that is coming full circle here. That is what makes you calmer.
0: Dan, we often ask our guests what their favorite quote is. Can you share with us your favorite
2: quote?
3: I don't know if it's a favorite quote. The one that's just coming to mind right now is a quote I used as the inscription at the beginning of a book I wrote called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. Mm-hmm. And it's from a Thai meditation master. And he said, the untrained mind is stupid. I like that because it's true. The dumbest things we do are because we're caught up. We're more mindless. We are just yanked around by our ego And the wisest things we do come out of a very different place.
1: Dan, last question. (laughs) You are incredible. I know. What book should everyone read besides 10% 10 Happier happier and Meditation meditation (laughs) for Fidgety Skeptics?
3: I would definitely not put those two on the books that everybody (laughs) should read. If you've gotten this far in the podcast, (laughs) you kind of know my shtick. So there are a couple of books that I really like for skeptics as an introduction to Buddhist meditation. One is called Buddhism Without Belief. So it's a really aimed at skeptics and folks who either are agnostic slash atheist or who have their own religious beliefs and don't want to like get sucked into somebody else's religion. It's by Stephen Batchelor, B-A-T-C-H-E-L-O-R. It's a very slim volume and really readable. The other book that I really like is called Why Buddhism is True also written by a sort of non-believer science writer by the name of Robert Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. He is incredibly smart, and he's also very funny. And to see a mind like his engage with this 2,600-year-old tradition is quite a thing to behold. Those are two great books to sort of get you into this whole world.
1: Dan, we thank you for being on
0: Health no. and for all your work that you do to make mindfulness and meditation so accessible to people. And the way you talk about that you're the gateway to it. It's such a gift to all of us. So thank you.
3: I love talking about this stuff. This was an easy one to do. I'm sitting on the living room floor. <laughs> my cat Toby's on my lap drooling. On me. <laughs> uh, not, I don't know how I got a cat. This is the most dog-like cat in the world. He's not only does he drool but he drinks out of the toilet so
2: <laughs> Not a very smart cat. that's great well
0: thank you so much my pleasure thanks for having me on thank you for joining us on health gig we loved having you with us we hope you'll tune in again next week in the meantime be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com i'm trisha and i'm Doro. be well